Hello, and welcome to The Canadian Story, where we discuss what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Canadian Story. Uh, Zach and I are very excited to welcome James, who is a historian, who will be talking to us about some of Canada's actual story, the, the history of this country. Not that our other uh, guests have not been part of the Canadian story, but that this is just a, a, a really cool Canadian story that I think is, is largely untold. But before we get into that, James, I'd just like you to introduce yourself, give us a 30-second introduction, and then obviously tell us what you love about Canada. Sure, thanks. Well, first of all, thank you for uh, welcoming me to the program. I am happy to be here. Um, my name is James. I've got a PhD in Canadian history from the University of Calgary. I love studying um, 19th century Canada in particular. And there's lots about Canada that I enjoy. Um, but as a scholar, I guess one of the things that I like most about Canada is that it's a bit of a puzzle. It's full of ambiguities. It doesn't have a lot that's straightforward. Uh, so it really requires you to investigate consider different alternatives, and consider the various component parts. I like that. Canada is definitely a complex puzzle. Uh, can, you, can you elaborate on that a little bit before we go into uh, the topic? Like, what do, you, what do you mean by, like, what is puzzling to you about Canada? Sure. Well, one of the things that has been, one of the things that's characterized Canada in the past has been its relationship with the British Empire. Um. But of course, that isn't the whole story. There's a series of relationships within Canada as well, um, including indigenous settler relations, French-English relations. Our relationship with the United States has been increasingly important, especially since the Second World War. But even long before that as well, of course, we'll be talking about some of that today. But... There's quite a lot of component parts of of, uh, of Canada. Of the comp, yeah. And I guess the regionalism, something we've talked about a lot on this podcast, and I know you listened to the episode with Derek, is just the the increased tension around regionalism and how it, it, it seems to be becoming worse. But, I mean, there have been times that are maybe actually more existential. Uh, I guess we'll, we'll see what the future holds, but... Uh, I guess one of the things we want to talk about today is uh, a story that I think I didn't know about until uh, until I heard about it from you, which is the second battle of the Plains of Abraham. Uh, so why don't we go through for the listeners? Some of them won't know what the first battle was, uh, but I, it's a fairly iconic uh, battle, particularly uh, out east in Quebec and Ontario. Most people know it more than in the west, but why don't you kind of just give us a brief summary of the first one so that we can get into the meat of the second one. Sure. So the first Battle of the Plains of Abraham was the big moment where Britain sealed their conquest of New France. This takes place 1759, um, September of that year. The British, led by uh, General James Wolfe, um, surround the city and they launch a sneak attack, ultimately taking the city of, of Quebec. And uh, even though Wolfe himself dies in the battle, his men managed to secure control of the city. They managed to hold it until the spring when, of course, the St. Lawrence is no longer frozen and ships are able to come up that, uh, that vital waterway and 
the of course everyone's watching to see which will be the first ships to come down that that waterway will it be french or will it be english or british and of course it's the union jack flying on those ships um thus securing the british conquest they're able to get there immediately and and provide reinforcements provide the uh the necessary supplies so that's that's the first battle of the plains of abraham um and it was obviously critical for what's now canada it gave british control over over you know basically the entirety of central canada now um of course the the centerpiece being quebec at that time and the interesting thing is this is before the revolution the american revolution right so th this battle yep. at this point is basically arguably the height of the british empire to some degree because now we ha now they control essentially all of north america north of mexico absolutely this is huge so if you look at the map of North America before the Seven Years' War and after the Seven Years' War. Of course, the, the Plains of Abraham was part of the Seven Years' War. Um, you'll, you'll notice a huge difference in terms of what Britain controls. And in fact, they control a great portion of, of the eastern side of North America. The western side of North America was mostly controlled by indigenous peoples still at this point. Uh, but the eastern side, you know, the... Uh, the, the Treaty of Paris of 1763, at the end of that war, the Seven Years' War, that really confirmed Britain's control, their dominance of, of that portion of North America. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so we've got this. Basically, the British have taken control, almost undisputed control, of known North America. Like you said, the West was basically unsettled. Uh, like the, the indigenous people were living just as they had for tens of, or almost 10,000 years. But, um, well, not just as they had, because obviously they're trading uh, with uh, the European settlers, and that's transforming their life in different ways. But I'm very interested in your take on this second battle, because, you know, Canadians often talk about, you know, the American Revolution and, and all that kind of stuff. But we don't, I don't think we understand the existential crisis that the American Revolution was to Canada. And then, so could you uh, speak a little bit to that? Absolutely. I think to set the stage, it would be good to go back a little bit to that settlement of 1763 at the end of the Seven Years' War, because this, this led to major challenges for Britain. Even though they now control most of the eastern side of North America, they also have several new challenges. Uh, you know, we could, we could identify four major challenges, I guess we could say. If we want, we can go into each of them. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I would love to. Yeah. Yeah. So... The first challenge they have is Quebec. How do they maintain control over this region of a people that are um, French, Catholic, and they might not immediately be cooperative with uh, the British authorities? So, of course, Britain needs to find a way to control this region and pacify the people so that there aren't going to be constant um, struggles. So th this was a trade-off. Britain obviously wanted to keep Quebec because up to this point, there had been several wars in North America and France had always used Quebec very effectively um, to launch further attacks on the British. So the British knew that they needed strategically, they needed to keep Quebec. But this led to all sorts of other challenges, which, which we, we touched upon. The second major challenge was how to govern the indigenous peoples of the interior 
who had previously had relationships with the French. So we're talking about the Great Lakes region, you know, what's now Michigan um, and, and, and that, that whole area also, you know, parts of Ontario and that kind of thing. Um, the French had dealt with indigenous people in this region for, for quite a long time at this point, about a hundred years. And they'd established, you know, some pretty positive trading relationships um, and diplomatic alliances. Now the British are controlling this region uh, in the Great Lakes. And so how do they now, now take over these relationships and still continue to make this, um, this region profitable as it had been in the fur trade under the, uh, under the French? But how do they also, you know, get the indigenous people on side who had previously been allied to the French? The French. Um, and this is there's problems right away. Pontiac's War, 1763, um, was an uprising of indigenous people against the British, and so this shows that they did not do a good job at first. So that's the second challenge. The third is how do you raise money now um, after ac accumulating a lot of war debt? During the Seven Years' War, obviously, Britain went all in to beat the French. This is very costly. You have to raise a lot of ships, a lot of men, feed and house everybody, um, you know, let alone all the ammunition and everything that you need. So that's another major problem. They're in major debt. And the fourth problem is how do you address all of those three problems and still not upset the English colonists um, of, <laughs> yes, of yes. North America? <laughs> So, you know, one way I like to look at the, uh, the American Revolution is in relationship with the Seven Years' War, Britain's trying to deal with all these four problems, these four challenges, and they managed to do three of them rather well, and the fourth one very poorly. <laughs> right, right. So, so and that, and <laughs> thus the results. <laughs> exactly, and that's what leads to the, the, to the American Revolution. Right, because taxation without representation. Yeah, so I mean, we could also get into some of that if we want, but you know, the way that Britain is trying to address these the, the first three problems ends up upsetting the English colonists of North America. So, for example, also in 1763, the British say, um, in order to preserve positive relationships or build positive relationships with Indigenous people, we're not going to let any of our English colonists expand westward of this point. They call it the Proclamation Line. And that upsets some of the colonists who have their eyes on the West. They want to go further West. There's opportunities there for them. But the British are saying, no, not without permission. We need to respect the indigenous peoples of this region. We need to make, uh, form relationships with them and alliances. Um, so obviously, I think that, you know, that's a, a good move. But obviously, it had, it had some ripple effects for others who are also wanting that land. Um, and of course... Britain needs to pacify Quebec, as we mentioned. So some of the ways that they do that are also upsetting to the English colonists. The, the major one of this is the Quebec Act of 1774. This act not only gives um, Catholics much more power than they would have anywhere else in the British Empire. They're allowed to actually hold government offices, be appointed to government offices. They couldn't do this in Britain at that time. Um, so that's starting to upset some of the English Protestants of North America. And not only that, but it also is a major land grant or major land um, expansion for Quebec jurisdiction, including all the way over east to, to Labrador was part of Quebec at this time. Oh, wow. Wow. And, 
and westward into the Great Lakes region. They're, they're, they're counting that under Quebec jurisdiction. So this, these are all aspects of the Quebec Act of 1774 that are beginning to get the, the Americans or the English colonists at this time a bit of grief saying, hey, why are they you know, bending over backwards for all these other people? But meanwhile, they're taxing us. They won't um, let us expand west. Yeah, the Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, like there's all these taxes. And we're, we're not even being consulted in any of this. Right, right. So, oh, man, this is great. So, so basically, we're, we're, we got a powder keg in the English colonies because we're trying. It, this is so common, right? You're trying to pacify one region of the quote-unquote empire, and you know another region becomes upset by this. So what is the result? Well, it starts off with little skirmishes here and there, localized skirmishes. You have, um, you know, mostly in the Boston area is, is where it starts, but it ends up creating problems elsewhere. Of course, we have the famous um, Boston Tea Party, 1773, I believe, you know, a major protest takes place. But even before that, you have um, what's known as the Boston Massacre of 1770. Yes, yes, yes. Um, in which the British decide to crack down on, uh, on their own colonists uh, in a very harsh way. And of course, this is starting to build, build up resentment. And this, this is mounting for years and years. And um, but yeah, you know, I, I like to look at this. I think the way you put it is good. Like they're trying to pacify some regions of the empire and inadvertently upsetting other regions of the empire in the process. But ultimately, you know, it brings it to a head. You know, the Americans begin to organize they, they form the, you know, what's called the, the First Continental Congress, followed by the Second Continental Congress, in which they eventually raise an army. Um, so things are beginning to organize and to get serious, and um, it ends up leading to the American Revolution, which could be seen as a civil war, really. Can you speak to um, how the French played a role in this? And Because what fascinates me about what we're about to talk to is Quebec chose the British's side. Uh, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, also, my just just for your information, my family and Zach's family are um, United Empire loyalists. So mm-hmm. obviously, not all the Americans uh, disagreed with the British. Um, yes. But uh, but I'd like you to speak to those two points. The first is France obviously is ecstatic right now, right? They're like, yes, <laughs> the, the British Empire is crumbling. Let's foment this civil war. Let's, let's get this revolution going. And I mean, so they're, they're happy. But somehow, in this very short period of time, the Quebecois have shifted sides. Yeah, so that, uh, I do want to qualify that by saying, I think a lot of the common people uh, among the Quebecois weren't necessarily interested in whose side they were supporting. I think a lot of them just wanted to, you know, run their farms and live their daily lives. They didn't really care about some of the geopolitical stuff going on. But certainly Quebec's elites are beginning to say, you know what, maybe we're doing okay under the British rule. And we'd certainly prefer this to whatever Republican scheme they're coming up with down south. So, um, so yeah, what leads to that change? Well, I think it it starts off right with the with with the early days of the conquest. Now, th- there's mixed messages, of course. Anytime that that the, the British are are conquering a people, there's obviously going to be uh, a lot of 
negative fallout from that. There's there's plenty of people who were directly affected by that, you know, loved ones killed and that type of thing. So, I mean, it, it wasn't a cakewalk. But in the in the years that followed, the British did make several overtures to try to say, look, we're going to respect your religion, the Roman Catholic religion. We are going to um, ensure that you, your your rights in terms of your property rights are respected. We're not going to seize your property. So they're beginning to make overtures like that. And then once you have the first British governor of Quebec, whose name is James Murray, he um, also tends to rule the the Quebecois uh, generally more leniently than he's ruling his English colonists. So there are some English colonists in Quebec as well. Um, but James Murray is much harsher towards them than he is towards the French. Oh, the interesting, French, uh, interesting. French well, probably he, probably he has orders from on high. Don't piss these people off. We can't have them rebelling. Yeah, exactly. In fact, one, um, one good anecdote about James Murray's rule over Quebec is that um, he was so harsh with his English subjects that in one case there, there was a man who was very critical of James Murray um, and publicly denounced him, publicly criticized him. James Murray had him arrested and had his ear cut off. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, so how many people are living in Quebec at this time? That's a good question. I, I don't know for sure. I'd have, to, I'd have to look into that, you know, when it comes to numbers and things. Because uh, I've always I wondered, like, memorize that. how big was it compared to America? I know that there were more American settlers because they just had more established colonies, but Quebec was quite big already at this time, like, population-wise. Like, it was bigger than any single, as far as I know, any single U.S. state. Hmm. I'd have to go back and check that. I, I know, like, there were, you know, several much more populated areas in um, in the English colonies, you know, Boston and things, especially New York. Um, I think Quebec has generally had a, a lesser population over its history. You know, I think part of that is, you know, how do you attract people to a colder region? That type of thing. Right. But right, um, yeah, I'd have to double check about that. I'm not sure. I don't think it was significantly higher. I think it I guess it's lesser. just a, a quite a large region too. So it's just quite spread out, right? Because I think you, have, yeah. you still have the Acadians at that point, don't you? As well. Yeah. Yeah. So the Acadians, yeah. I mean, technically, the, you know, if you look at the Quebec Act, that the Acadians would have been under that... Uh, under that jurisdiction as well, you know, in what's now New Brunswick, Nova Scotia. So. All right. So moving forward here, we've, so we've set the stage. We've got the revolution is brewing. It's, it's coming up. An army's been created. Quebec, uh, the Quebec elite, going back to that, they've been treated well. They're like, we're probably going to get a better deal from the Anglicans than we do from the radical Protestants who left England to, to practice their own religion. So, so that they're making a calculated decision here. They're they're picking a side, even though the quote unquote mother country is siding with the revolutionaries. Yes, yeah, and you know, just to talk about that briefly, what is France's role in all of this? They're not interested in republicanism, obviously. No, um, no, you know, it's, no. <laughs> um, they know, just Louis hate the, the British. <laughs> yeah, obviously, later they'll have their own revolution, their own problems. So, I mean, you know. I, it, 
what did they do to fuel that? Maybe, you know, maybe they fueled some of that across the Atlantic and didn't realize it would come back to bite them later. But what they're thinking at this time is we just want to get back at the British. We want to weaken their empire. So what, I mean, they, they end up actually providing support later on in the war. I think it's something like 1780 that they're actually supporting the war more directly. I, I think before this, I don't think, I don't know. I don't know exactly the extent of their support, but but yeah, they, they step in later for sure. And it's not for ideological reasons. It's purely <laughs> no. for, you know, we want to get back at our, our historic enemy, the British. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so we've set the stage. Let's talk about this battle that no one's ever heard of. That's maybe one of the most important in Canadian history. Yeah. So what we have basically is, um, the invasion of Quebec takes place in 1775. Now, there's sort of a long lead up to all this. You have two different sides, um, Benedict Arnold leading one side and uh, uh, Montgomery leading the other side, going up north via different routes through New York. Um, and it's quite a journey um, through poor, poor conditions. Um, you have a lot of a lot of soldiers defecting actually, but by the time I think it's estimated up to half of Benedict Arnold's force actually defected before wow. they even got to Because it was so hard, like just rugged land or, and bad conditions. Rugged land, bad conditions. I think there was an outbreak of a disease. Which one was it now? I, I want to say cholera or something. It, one of the, one of the common ones at the time. Um, wow. So people are just miserable. And so, so for the, for the listeners who don't know, who is Benedict Arnold? Benedict Arnold is probably more known for his later developments in the story. At the time, he was um, a you know a very sincere American um, patriot, revolutionary. He was he was fighting against the British. Later on, of course, his name would become synonymous with uh, being a traitor. Um, but that's, we're not at that part of the story yes, yet. Yes, exactly. Um, and so, yeah, <laughs> I think a lot of people don't know that, that he was a patriot, right? Because he's, I think a lot of people don't know that he was a patriot because so many people just associate him with betrayal, right? That's right. Yeah. It wasn't until, you know, much later on in the war that he decided he's going to sell out the American, um, Fort West Point, uh, to the British. Um, so, but yeah, at this point of the story, he is an American hero, um, and in fact, he would later, um, you know, help win the Americans, the major battle of Saratoga. And, uh, and it's kind of strange that, you know, there've been monuments to that battle of Saratoga where they will not mention Benedict Arnold's name, <laughs> <laughs> even though he won it. <laughs> yeah. They, uh, you know, they, they want to honor the soldiers there and they want to, you know, celebrate their victory, but they will not mention the, the person who won it for them. <laughs> he is dead to them. This is, uh, this is a story of treachery. I love it. Okay, so Benedict, like, this is amazing. Benedict Arnold, everyone knows that name, even if they don't know who he is. He's leading this force into Quebec. He's invading Canada. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so he is coming up uh, the east side to Quebec City. Meanwhile, Montgomery is going along the west side to Montreal. So the Montreal part of the story takes place first because they, the Americans actually have some success invading Montreal and taking over the city. Now, the problem is um, 
they expect to be greeted as liberators. They expect the French Canadians are going to say, oh, that's, that's awesome. You're helping us fight our historic enemies. The British as well will join you. That's the expectation. In fact, I have some quotes in my article that I think are pretty good, uh, juicy quotes that really show what the Americans are thinking right now. Maybe I'll just pull that up real quick. Yeah, please do. I, I love that article. Oh, yeah. So the Americans wrote a series of letters to the, to the Quebecois before, the, before invading and then some during their invasion. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and certainly the ones during, we could see that as like propaganda pieces being like, we are, we are conquering you, but for your own good. Um, so, but even before that, here's, here's what one of them said um, in a letter to Quebec. They said, the injuries of Boston have roused and associated every colony from Nova Scotia to Georgia. Your province is the only link wanting to complete the bright and strong chain of union. And later, when they're actually occupying Montreal, uh, I think this is early 1776, um, they write another letter saying that um, we're, we're fighting for your liberty, your honor, and your happiness. So again, this whole line is like, we are your liberators. We are here for you. We're helping you out. But they're not buying it. Um, and it's for a couple of reasons that they're not buying it. Um, number one, the Americans are not showing that they respect the people of Montreal. They are ironically um, demanding... Um, you know, housing, shelter, <laughs> food. Basically taxing and, them. <laughs> yeah. And for their own say, good. Say, for, for their own Sorry. good, yes. <laughs> for their own good, though. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so so logistically, how do you feed and house again, you know, a thousand soldiers over a winter? I mean, unless you have really good supply chains, you've got to take that from locals. Um, so obviously, you're going to have a, a, a hard time. And um, so right away, the people of Montreal are not thrilled with, uh, with the Americans. And, you know, I say, I say this was ironic because this was one of the main critiques that the Americans had of the British was the Quartering Act, in which the British said, yeah, our soldiers are legally allowed to take your property, parts of, you know, allowed to take your barns, yep, allowed to yep. take your food. You know, we expect that you'll give us not only food, but also, you know, whatever firewood we need, that type of thing. So this was a major grievance for the American colonists. And now the Americans are doing the same thing in Montreal. They're wow. saying, look, we need you to house us and feed us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're realizing that the, the cost of empire. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, it's, maybe it's one of those cautionary tales. It's like, it's easy to be a critic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 but, exactly. But it's not so easy to, to govern. There's all sorts of complications. Okay, so the Americans are in Montreal. They're they're trying to house themselves for the winter. They're pissing off the locals. Meanwhile, we've got Benedict Arnold headed to Quebec City. Yes. So Benedict Arnold ends up in Quebec City. His his forces are deteriorated at this point. I think there's only like six hundred men left out of you know over a thousand that that left with him. But he is joined up by Montgomery's forces now. They've, they've secured Montreal. Now their next step is to go take Quebec. And so now we're in late December of 1775. This is before the, the you know, Declaration of Independence is even declared. But they know that they need to try to get Quebec on side. It's the missing link in their chain against the British Empire. 
So um, Montgomery and Arnold meet up in uh, on the outskirts of Quebec City. They've got a combined force of only about 1,000 men, 1,100, something like that. It's not huge. And in fact, um, the estimates are that the British had about 1,800 men within wow. the walls of Quebec City. Wow. Plus, they have the advantage of being in a walled city, you know, with <laughs> artillery and everything. This like, is very, this is it, very it, strange. <laughs> yeah. So, so looking at this from hindsight, it seems like a suicide mission. There's, there's no way this could have been successful. So, yeah. On one hand, we we look at this battle and say, oh, what if it had gone differently? What if the Americans had won? That would have changed everything. When you look at the details, I'm not sure if that was possible. You know, I think if. If the Americans had had full intelligence about what they were up against, um, they must have known this would have been a fool's mission. But they didn't, is what we it, uh, what we assume. They had no idea what they were up against. I guess so. Yeah, I don't. Uh, yeah, I, you know, there could be debates about this. There's all sorts of things like historians debate about what did they know, what didn't they know, what 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 information were they acting on. Well, I mean, Napoleon but, frequently went up against forces double his size and beat them. So, I mean, it is possible, but like, oh like yeah, you, like you said, uh, very very difficult. I mean, maybe they were still under the delusion that they would be greeted as liberators, that there would right. be internal yes. sympathizers yes. Yes. who would, you know, you know, help them fight against the British. They would just get uh, get local sympathizers, but that ended up not being the case. So they're marching on Quebec City. What happens next? Yeah. So it's so got to set the stage. It is New Year's Eve, oh. 1775. You know, not much a more dramatic date one could pick. And to add to that, the atmosphere is, it's snowy. There's a, there's a bit of a blizzard coming in. So the Americans are, are beginning to think this could be our chance. The visibility is low. They're not expecting us. We could sneak in um, and, and, and get them while they're unaware. Now, that was also a bad decision uh, because <laughs> visibility was poor for the British, but it was also poor for the Americans. Right, right, right. So in order to counteract this, some of them foolishly light lanterns. Some of the Americans light lanterns in order to try oh, to, no. to, to light their way. You know, this is this is the night, but that of course makes them walking targets. <laughs> right, right. Hello, I am here. <laughs> here I am. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So there are the two sides, they decide to split off. So Montgomery takes the the south side of the city, and Arnold decides to go around to the north side of the city. So Montgomery's men, they they attack first. Now they were trying to coordinate this, but that's difficult to do when when there's poor communication. It's not like they have, you know, radios or anything like that. The idea was they would, you know, send a signal of like a gunshot and then they would both attack at the same time, sort of idea. But that doesn't happen. By the time Montgomery's men even get to the wall, they've already been sighted by the British. The British wait until they're close enough and then they shoot them at close range. Oh, oh, oh. So Montgomery's forces don't even breach the walls of the city. Montgomery himself is killed in this attack by the British. And we, we speculate it's because, because some of them had lit lanterns for their own uh, you know, ability to see. And it just made them spotted by the British right away. So anyway, the, Montgomery's forces on the south, they don't even breach the walls of the city. Meanwhile, Benedict Arnold is coming around the north side. And 
by this point, the British are alerted to the American presence because Montgomery attacked first. They realize that the Americans are out there. So they're on high alert and they realize that uh, there's more coming in from the north side. So they are spotted before they even reach the gates. Oh, wow. So Benedict Arnold's men are about to breach the gates, but they're, they're under a barrage before they even get there. And Benedict Arnold himself is shot in the leg. His leg is shattered. He can't go, he can't go any further. So wow. he decides he's going to fall back personally, but his men are going to go forward. Oh, wow. So it's just a mess from the beginning. Um, now, I'm trying to remember the name of the, uh, the man who takes over for Arnold. Um, I mentioned this in the article. Let me just see if I can find that. Okay, so Morgan. Daniel Morgan. So Benedict Arnold falls back, but his troop is taken over by a man named Daniel Morgan, who says, okay, we're going to go forward. We're going we're gonna to get into the walls of the city. They managed to breach the walls and to get into the interior of, of Quebec City. The plan was... Arnold's men would get in from the north and Montgomery's men would get in from the south and they'd meet together in the center of the city to take the city. Of course, Montgomery's men never make it. They never make it past the, the south wall. Um, and, and Montgomery is dead uh, at this point already. So Daniel Morgan, taking over for Benedict Arnold, makes it to the, me- to the, to, he makes it to oh, the, center to the center of, of the, the city. city. Oh, and then he's surrounded. He's surrounded. So the British have him covered, right. and and he's he's fighting for his survival at this point. Him and, and a small number of men, whatever. Left, I think it's four hundred men that are that that are still left, um, and they manage to have a gunfight in the streets of Quebec City um, until nine a.m. the next morning. Wow! Um, and until they just they have to face reality and they surrender. So wow. of course, at that point. <laughs> Um, Daniel Morgan and 400 men are taken prisoner by the but British. But Benedict Arnold is not. No, not yet. No, no, <laughs> he, he's never taken prisoner at this point. He he eventually goes back to Montreal. I can't remember when exactly he goes back to Montreal, but um, but the, you know that's still an American stronghold for now. But uh, yeah, Quebec City never fall, falls to the Americans. Those 400 that actually breached the city walls are captured. So, so that this is the turning of the tide. This is the the furthest reach that the Americans ever get. Right. This is this is when the British start to push them back. So, when does That's Montreal right. fall? At what year? Do, what year does Montreal fall back to the British? Uh, that that next spring. So it's seventeen seventy six. The spring spring comes, which means the Saint Lawrence has thawed. Which if means there's anything the British, British are troops, good at, they've got ships. <laughs> yeah. So those, those uh, you know, the British Navy, you know, hail Britannia, Britannia rules the waves. The famous song goes, yep. they can, they can dominate the water once they, once they have the option to. And when spring comes, that thaw allows those Union Jacks to sail down the St. Lawrence and um, provide those reinforcements to Quebec City. And then ultimately to, uh, to march on Montreal. The Americans realize that their days are numbered in Montreal they, and they flee. So they don't even, um, they, like the British don't even have to get to Montreal. They just right, hear that right. you know, 10,000 men yeah. are coming. 
10,000 maybe, red coats are coming and we maybe need to time get to step right in. away. Yeah, yeah, we, okay. So so this this is before the loyalists kind of start fleeing America too, right? Or is it around the same time? No, so the loyalist migration doesn't happen until after the war. Um you know, after the war is over. So 1783 is um is when the American War for Independence is officially over. And at that point, they have to decide what to do about the Loyalists. Um, of course, a large portion of the population, which are not on board with this Republican experiment going on in North America. Yep, yep. Um, what well, do they, they do? Tar- they tarred so. and feathered a bunch of them. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, brutal. It, we really should look at the American Revolution as a civil war uh, in the sense that this is these are all British colonists, for the most part, British colonists, um, who are ideologically opposed to one another, fighting over control of the same territory. I think this is, um, you know, has all the makings of a civil war. So, of course, how do you resolve that after the war is over? You know, in some cases, civil wars have, you know, once they've been won, you've been able to try to reintegrate the two different sides, like the American Civil War later would do, you know, where they try to reintegrate the North and the South to still see themselves as part of the same country. That was a difficult process, of course. But in the case of the American Revolution, how do you get these two sides to still see each other as part of the same country now? Um, so they ultimately decide that they're going to let the Loyalists leave. And, you know, many come up to Canada, of course. Um, some go to Britain, some go to other um, British colonies in the Caribbean. But yeah, that, that's that's a later part of the story, technically. Yeah, but we yeah. could we could jump ahead to that. Well, I just thought that's the part that covers, I thought like I love I and I I just want to iterate how much I love this information that you're giving us. Like this is a story that every school child in Canada should know, right? This is this is yeah. Canadian history. That's you know we beat the Amer- well we did. Everyone's like, well, you did. The Canada didn't beat the Americans. The British did. Well, that's what Canada was, and not only that. Canada, the the Quebec chose Canada, <laughs> right? Yes, At the end of the yes. day, Quebec was like Quebec. The I always say the founding nation of our country, and it is. They decided to be Canada and not America, and that's mm-hmm. and that. There's nothing more definitive to the Canadian identity, like our ancestors, loyalists. But there's nothing more definitive to the Canadian identity than not American. And everyone's like, oh, that's so lame. Like, we need a better identity than that. I'm like, yeah, in some ways, but that's literally who we are. We are a bunch of people who said, no, <laughs> we don't like your your Republican ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really a big part of the story. You know, I do, I do try to get um, out of out of thinking of it just that way. I, you know, I think, you know, maybe I, I'm, I'm part of that group that's saying, aren't we more than just not American? Oh, I absolutely. do agree that's a big, yeah, I do agree that's a big part of the story. But yeah, I do also wonder, is there more? Is there more that we are? Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a big part of it. Well, and the other really, so did what role did the First Nations play in this, uh, in this battle, if any? Good question. Um, I know that... Um, the, the Iroquois, also known as the Haudenosaunee, um, which were at the time based around upstate New York, they were greatly affected by, by this battle and by this war in general, this part of the war. 
And in fact, their, their confederacy, the Iroquois confederacy split over the American War of Independence. Some decided to, to some of the, so it, it's made up of, of five nations later, six nations. Um, I think at this point there were six nations. Um, some of them decide to side with the Americans. Some decide to side with the British. Some dis- at, are first trying to remain neutral, but then the Americans marched through their lands and they said, <laughs> okay, we're, we're fighting for the British now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Yeah. So First Nations are are definitely involved with uh, with this part of the war. I don't I don't know about the the Battle of Quebec itself if there were First Nations involved with that one. I'd have to look into that. Yeah, that would but, be, that um, would be a little int- because I I know that uh, that was actually like you said the greatest strength of the Quebec law, and you see it even to to, to this day in Quebec. The relationship between First Nations and the Quebec government seems to just be on a different level of respect and appreciation than anywhere else in the country. Uh, and so I, I I don't know what role they play, but I'd be very interested in, in hearing that because I know that the French, oh, the Métis even, right, the, the French First Nations relationship has always been a very special one in our country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this was a big part of one of the problems that the British had after 1763 in the, in the Great Lakes region. You know, what I mentioned earlier Pontiac's War. You know, one of the reasons that this was a challenge for them is that the French had learned to integrate into First Nations ways of diplomacy. Um, They learned about gift diplomacy, for example. This was a major part of it, is when you form a new trading alliance with someone, you need to give gifts to them. This was part of sort of the ceremonies, like the the protocols of of being in a trade relationship with, with, with different First Nations groups in the Great Lakes region. The British didn't understand this at first. They come into this region and say, "We're not going to give you gifts. We're going to trade. Like this is what this is our price." Right, and, right. Know. So British. That's so British. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want so a they, good so deal. They had, <laughs> so they had they had a certain way of thinking. They didn't realize that it was how, this was how it was done in in First Nations cultures in the Great Lakes region. The French quickly learned that, and they also. You know, we're very good about forming alliances through marriages. This is why we have the Métis community in that region. Um, the British, at first, you know, they were very slow to pick this up. They just thought, oh, no, this is how we do it. So we expect you to do it this way as well. So they ended gift diplomacy, um, which ended up, you know, being part of the, the the reason that First Nations began to say, oh, they're disrespecting us. We want to go back to the to the French. You know, what about those white guys? You know, they, yeah, they we like them at, better. <laughs> at, at learning our ways. These new these new redcoats, they don't know anything. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that's, oh, I feel like I could pick your brain on this for hours and hours. Well, when I'm in Calgary, we should just go for a beer and talk about it for fun. Um, that sounds great, yeah. But <laughs> uh, I guess... We have about five more minutes here, maybe maybe six. Uh, I love like having a degree in Canadian history is some. I, I can only imagine how much you must love this place. I mean, you've dedicated your life to knowing about it, to to understanding our country. So, do you mind sharing with the listeners? Uh, well, first, I know that we are all very appreciative of your knowledge and the the story that you got to tell us today, but. What is it about this country that made you dedicate your life to understanding it? Oh, that's a really good question. I don't know if I have a good, simple answer. Um, I think, you know, part of my love for Canadian history comes from hearing some of these little stories when I was a kid. 
and thinking to myself, oh, that's really cool. You know, sometimes it's just a, an adventure story. This is what sort of gets people interested in history, I find, in the first place, is they find a sense of adventure in it. But as, as my understanding of Canadian history began to mature, I began to see it as a bit more of collective autobiography. Um, this is a phrase that I think um, historian J.M. Bumstead uses when talking about Canadian history. He says, you know, the study of history is a study of ourselves and our, our collective autobiography. It's learning about who we are by learning about our past. So to me, I think that's, that's part of this process uh, of learning history. This is part of the value of it is we can begin to appreciate and explore who we are by learning about our past. And you know what, I think Canada has changed so much over time. You know, at, at, in, in 1775, if you were to say, what, was, what did it mean to be a Canadian? You know, at that time it was mostly French Catholic, but under British rule. <laughs> right, yes, yes. Um, but that, that changed quite a bit with the Loyalist migrations. You know, beginning with the 1780s, 1790s, you know, what it meant to be a Canadian became more complex because now it's these people with um, an American colonial heritage who spoke English, who are Protestant. The Orangemen. So, the Orangemen. Oh, yeah. Yes. I mean, that's, that's another part of, the, part of the story as well. Yeah. Is, um, in, some, in some ways, these are, these are contradictions. You know, to be Canadian is to be both French, Catholic, and English Protestant at this time. You know, and you know, First Nations, of course, how do they fit into this story at that time? You know, so it's an ongoing conversation. And it, you know, like I said at the beginning, I think this is what I mean when I say Canada is kind of a puzzle. It's full of ambiguities and contradictions that makes it more interesting to, to study and learn about, I suppose, is that there's never a straightforward answer. There's always room to explore, to find something new about it. Yeah. And to learn something no. new about ourselves. Oh, uh. I love that. And I think Canadian history is probably one of the most understudied histories of a great nation ever. Wouldn't you agree? Like we need oh, yeah. to be we yeah. need to be putting more effort into into actually learning our story. Cause even I, who have I'm a, obsessed with history, I was, you know, started reading, you know, Plutarch's lives when I was twelve, right? And like I've been I've been studying mostly I would say Greco-Roman slash British Empire history for for my entire life. Uh, and one of the things that uh, has always been odd to me is I love history and I barely know the history of my own country. What, 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 do you have any thoughts on that, Zach? Like, do you feel like you got a good understanding of Canadian history? No, I think like, I mean, I didn't do any post-secondary, but it, my high school experience, um, I would say Canadian history was a very small portion of the class, like the, the history classes that I took in high school. Um, it was very focused on Europe and the wo world wars, which we did play a, a huge part in, but you know, we're only, we only make up a percentage of that particular story. So overall, like I, I feel like there was very little, um, time spent just geographically in our own country, which is unfortunate. Yeah, it, it really is. Cause we, we do have a, a great story to tell. I would argue, I mean, the whole, I mean, obviously I must think so. I've started a podcast called the Canadian story, but, um, but like one of the things that I love most about our country is exactly what you said. I just want to highlight it for the listeners. 
we are a country of contradictions. So you can choose to take those contradictions and say, oh, how could this ever work? But it, but somehow, I mean, and maybe it will fall apart, but somehow, for hundreds of years, we made it work. And, and could you just, maybe in a one or two minute thought, why do you think it works? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, you, you could do a whole semester on <laughs> maybe, that. You could do a whole yeah, degree on that question. Yeah, that's true. But, it's you know, true. give us yeah. the 30-second yeah, like, you know, version. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I don't know how it works. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, that's, maybe you know, that's what we have to figure out. Yeah, I think on the face of it, it looks like it shouldn't work. I think you have these contradictory forces that have historically been, you know, against one another. Um, you know, I, I'm especially thinking of the French-English side here. But I guess what's made it work is to try to balance the different interests involved. And that's bound to make a lot of people upset. It, we're seeing this in, in Canada every day when you turn on the news. You know, one side is happy, but the other side is worried that uh, they're being left out. And um, it's a constant conversation. And, you know, it does it does make you wonder, you know, what makes it work? You know, I think you have to have some very good diplomats involved. You know, you have to have some people willing to compromise, but also people who aren't willing to just sit down and and take it. You know, there also has to be people who say, look, I'm part of this country too, and I need to be part of it. I, I need to to be recognized here. And I think that's why we have people in the West. We have people in Quebec. You know, at various points in our history, we've had First Nations. You know, people, all, all parts of this country have said, look, I'm part of this country too, and we need to recognize that and make sure that I'm included. And, and, and for, somehow, we seem to muddle our way through. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that's a beautiful absolutely. thing. Well, thank you so much for coming on, James. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, I'm definitely going to, we'll definitely have you on again. Uh, thank you for what you do uh, in telling the Canadian story. I I very much appreciate that you've chosen this as your vocation because I think it's entirely important. Awesome. Thank you all, so, all as well for your time today. I, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to The Canadian Story. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The CAD Story. That's The C-A-D Story. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Let's work together to remind Canadians how great their country is. Thank you.